Set down among them. Please be seated. I want to take you on a trip down my personal memory lane. There was a day when I was a child that stood out above all the rest. It was a summer day in which my father, my granddad, several of my friends and their fathers would go camping. Now, we lived up on Sand Mountain. and On the other side of the valley was Lookout Mountain. I'm not going to let you decide which one was the best. Sand Mountain was the best because that's where I lived. Lookout Mountain is well known. That's where Ruby Falls. That's where Sea Rock City is. But Sand Mountain is near and dear to my heart. But down in the valley was a little place called Pine Ridge. And a family friend of ours, he owned a cabin there. And that's where we would go camping. Now the adults, they were not roughing it. They were in the cabin, as you expect. But the kids, we were all outside in our tents. Now, as soon as we got there, the first thing we did was bolt to the woods. That's what we did. We just went to the woods. That's what kids did back then. I don't know what y'all are doing now, but that's what we did back then. We went to the woods. We'd play wiffle ball for hours. We'd throw football for hours. We would grill out hot dogs, hamburgers. We'd have the works, have a real big spread. But when it got dark, that's when the real fun started happening. Now, imagine a 10-year-old playing hide-and-go-seek in the middle of the dark in what appears to be an infinite amount of land. Hours and hours and hours. One time I was sitting for like three hours. I was squatted down in the woods. I wasn't moving. It was me and two other guys were squatting there. Three hours, people. That next morning I woke up, I had chiggers from here to here all the way around. And that's a visual you're going to have a hard time getting out of your head, but that's a story for a different day. You don't want chiggers from here to here. That was quite the deal trying to get those out. Okay. But when it got dark, what do you do when you go camping? You have a fire. Roast marshmallows, sit around this fire, shoot the bull, hours on end. That's what we did. Now, 10-year-old boys, what are they going to do when you got a fire? Going to poke and prod. Get as close as you can. And you can get closer and closer and closer until you're so close that it is quite literally unbearable. And in that moment... A decision has to be made. Are you going to keep going or are you going to back up and react to the fire? Folks, the fires of life that we face as Christians are no different. We're faced with them and we have to make a decision. Are we going to keep going and be burned? Or are we going to do what God would have us to do? Are we going to act with integrity, with character, godly, how we're supposed to act? Are we going to kind of do things our way? Very quickly, I want us to look at two examples from the Old Testament, and then a little later we'll move to the New Testament. But two examples of individuals from the Old Testament in which fire was presented before them. That's what this whole weekend is about, forged by fire. Fire was presented before them, and they reacted in the proper way. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Father Abraham, he really needs no introduction. He's the father of the Hebrew people. God told him in Genesis chapter 12 that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay? But that promise would not come through Ishmael. No, no. 
It's going to come through the promised son, Isaac. I'll throw this in for whatever it's worth as a side note. When God promises something, you mark it down. You see, Abraham, he took Hagar, the handmaid, and said, we're going to expedite this process. God, you told me I was going to have a son. I still don't have one. We're going to make it happen. I'm going to sleep with Hagar. I'm going to have a son. That's not the promised son. Folks, when God says something, you mark it down. But anyways, he gets this baby boy. He gets Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. And it was no further than the next chapter in Genesis chapter 22 in which God asked Abraham to do something that no father could ever imagine. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. How about that for a good morning? Imagine God asking this request of you. Now, I don't have any children of my own, not married. And by the looks of my dating life, it's going to be a while. Okay, But no children, but I have a nine-month-old little sister that I am over the moon for. I'm 24, guys. I don't know how, what the age gaps here in Arkansas are, but it's kind of extreme in my family. Okay, That's a long time. Okay, so I'm over the moon for baby Shelby. But I can't imagine God coming to me and saying, Jace, you take baby Shelby and you go to the land of Moriah and you offer her there as a sacrifice on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. I can't put myself in those shoes. Actually, I can. But I don't know that I'd be able to react the same way as Abraham can. You put in your own scenario. I want you to notice the details of the text. Your son, possessive. Your only son, exclusive. There's not a spare. Isaac, oh, we got personal. Whom you love. There's an emotional attachment. So what do you do with this, Abraham? You've waited for the better part of 25 years to get a son, and this God, who is the giver of life, has come to you and asked you to Take a life, but not just only life. Your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Folks, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Abraham, look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early. How much sleep do you think he got that night? How much sleep do you think Abraham got? Do you think he tossed? Do you think he turned? Do you think he slept sound as a baby? Folks, how quickly do we react to the commands of God? Is there an immediacy to it? Or do we just put it to the wayside until it's more convenient for us? So Abraham rose early. Now, the brevity of the Scriptures, it doesn't really allow us to see the emotions that were... They had to be there. They had to be there. It says that he takes his saddle, or he takes his donkey. I want you to see... Abraham, a distraught individual, early in the morning, God has just said, go take your son, go offer him up. I want you to see a man that is beside himself doing this. had to be begrudgingly. God, I don't know why you want me to do this, but I'm going to do it. I, I want you to see Abraham chopping that wood. I want you to see a father with tears rolling down his cheek as that wood's being chopped. But then I want you to notice him get that wood and place it on his son to carry. Now, Isaac knew they were going to offer sacrifice. What did Isaac not know? Who the sacrifice was. I'd never noticed it until the study. Who else had to carry his own wood to his own death? 
the emotion in this scene. I, I can't imagine. And then I want you to notice. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. That fire. We have now come to a crossroads in Abraham's life. This fire is going to determine his destiny. This forge that he is in is going to determine his forever. And what was his response? That fire was hot. That setting was intense. But Abraham was willing to do what God asked. And it made all the difference in the world. It was accounted to him as righteousness. And because of that, the seed of promise came through Abraham. So not only was Abraham able to receive that blessing, folks, you and I were able to receive the blessing that would come through Abraham's obedience. The seed of Christ, excuse me, the seed of Abraham is Christ. Instance number two, let's go to the book of Exodus. Exodus. Moses is in the land of Midian. He, he's tending his father-in-law's sheep. And, and, I, and I have no reason to suspect that this is any other day than just a normal work day. I can just see Moses bebopping along, tending his, fa his father-in-law's sheep, and then he stopped in his tracks and he sees something. The angel of the Lord has presented himself. Now, all throughout the Bible, the angel of the Lord presents himself in many different manifestations. Normally, it's in a bodily form. But in this instance, it's a fire. But it's not just any fire. It says that it's fire that does not quench. And Moses is just enamored by this flame, transfixed on its majesty. He says, behold, this great sight. And for good reason, too, because God starts speaking out of it. Moses, Moses, remove your sandals, for the place in which you stand is holy ground. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I have heard the cry of my people, and I have come to deliver them. Come, and I will send you down to Egypt. You're going to be my spokesman. Now, I want you to imagine the thoughts racing through Moses' mind. He not only has to go back to the country in which he is a fugitive for murder, he's going to have to return to his former family, the ones he abandoned, a murderer, a fugitive. He had, he had no flashy ability. He couldn't speak publicly. He had within himself nothing that made him suitable for this unthinkable task. But guess what? God made him suitable for this task. The fire that God has put in our lives demands an immediate answer. God has every right to put our feet to the fire, pun intended. The question is, what is our reaction going to be? Are we going to be like Moses and make excuses? Well, God, I can't speak. I, I'm not suited for this. Young people, God, I'm just not ready to serve in that capacity. I, I'm too young for that. My friends won't think it's cool. Who cares? Who cares what the world thinks? Jesus didn't. Do we? God is the ultimate enabler and He has and will give us every ability to do what he has asked us to do. All you have to do is embrace the forging fire. If you can't handle what God has asked you to do, if you can't handle the fire that is the, in the kitchen for the Christian, then get out. Stop calling yourself a Christian because the Christian answers when God calls. Christian answers. Here I am. Send me.
Is that your mentality? Is that my mentality? Abraham immediately responded. Moses hesitated at first, but then went on to do what God had asked him to do. But I want to look at one more instance in the New Testament. Go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And before we get into this, I want to kind of lay a backdrop. I want to look at the human side of Christ. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, that Lagos, capital W. Lagos is multifaceted in its, its, in its um, definition, but it, we understand it as the pre-incarnated Christ. Christ, the second member of the Godhead before He came to earth. But the, in the beginning was the Word. He has always been, and the Word was with God. So this Word had that honor of being in the presence of God, and the Word was God. Okay, so He has always been, as in the presence of God, He Himself is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, what does that leave out? Well, not a thing. All things were made through Him. Folks, I think that's a very poor translation. The word there is genomai. Genomai. And it means to come into existence. Now, I used this analogy yesterday. My, my, my stepdad is a um, house builder by trade. Now, he can make a house. He, he can build one. He can go to Lowe's. He can go to Home Depot. He can, he can pick up all the supplies that he needs. The wood, electrical, plumbing, uh, all the stuff that women like to put into a house to make it a home. All that good stuff. And he can throw it together, and he has made a house. But I don't think this is what John had in mind. That word genomai means to come into existence. Folks, God did not have to go to Home Depot. He did not go to Lowe's to collect all the material in order to make the world. Skip down to verse 14. The same thought is carried over. And the word that Lagos, Jesus, the second member of the Godhead, became genomai, there it is again, sarks. Do, do me a favor. Rub your hands together. Touch your cheek. Folks, that's sarks. That's flesh. That's what Christ became. He became His creation. And in His incarnation, He was in every aspect just like us. Christ got tired. He got sleepy, hungry, angry, happy. Disappointed, sad, anything and everything you and I go through on a daily basis, Christ has went through it. Christ has went through it. So with that in mind, I want us to go to Luke chapter 22, and this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. Luke chapter 22. Stepping into Luke 22, we see Jesus who is at the end of His human rope, if you will, for all of time. The cross has been a shadow, has been in the distant future. Christ is uncreated, has always been, no starting point. But that point in time has always been in the mind of Christ. He has always known that it's coming and it has always been a shadow in the future. But folks, in Luke 22, it's no longer in the future, it's tomorrow. It's the next day. And we see Jesus struggling in Luke chapter 22. Well, it's because of the weight of what he's about to carry. And we see his struggle in his words, in his demeanor, and in his actions. All the while, thinking about what he would like to do. Father, let this cup pass from me. He don't want to do it. But all the while embracing what he has to do. 
And that ever so thin line, people, is the difference between us spending an eternity in heaven and eternity in hell. Jesus is struggling. So we get to verse 31, and we see that it reads, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Ah, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus reveals to Peter what is and what is to be of one of his best friends. Addressing his best friend and telling him that Satan wants him bad. And what does Peter do? He just brushes it off. Keep going. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's, there's no way that's true, Jesus. Are you kidding me? I, I've been with you through it all. Now, hindsight's always 2020, right? We, we can look at this text 2,000 years later, and we know what's going to happen. But Peter, he did not have that luxury. He did not have that luxury. In this moment, I have no doubt in my mind that Peter meant exactly what he said. This, he was just absolutely sure of his faithfulness to God. Confidence in his steadfastness beside Jesus. I have no doubt in my mind that that is exactly what he meant. You know why? Because I too have made those commitments. I too have made those promises. And in those moments, I meant it with all my heart. But unfortunately, life is not lived in the upper room setting. Life is not lived side by side with the master. Life is not lived at events like Blaze where you're surrounded by people that think like you, that believe like you. Life is not lived at church camp where you're completely excluded from the world and totally focused on the master. Life is not lived at home, young people, with your parents for all of eternity where they control what comes in and out of that house and is going to influence you. Life is not lived in those kind of environments. Folks, life is lived on the streets where our adversary, like a roaring lion, is going about seeking whom he may sift his wheat and devour. A Christian's life isn't lived in a vacuum where everything is controlled by a moral thermostat. We have to go back into the world, and once we get back into the world, those vows that we make to go to the cross with Christ to suffer by His side, those vows that we make in these comfortable settings, they're going to still hold true out there. The question is, are we going to still hold true out there? So this conversation puts Christ in sort of a dilemma. This claim by Peter, strong and heartfelt though it was, was not true. And Christ, Christ knew that. So is Christ going to say what He wants to say? Or is he going to say what he has to say? Because Christ is at the end of his rope now. He's come to the end of his life and finds himself in a state of despair. It would have been so much easier for him to go to the cross had somebody been by his side. Whoo, Peter. Boy, I'm glad you feel that way. I needed to hear that. Boy, I'm glad you're going to be with me all the way. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, bud. I, I'm glad you're going to be by my side. Is he going to say what he would like to say, oh, no, no, no. He says what he has to say. And don't you know it broke his heart to say that to his best friend? Don't you know that broke him to have to say that to Peter? But he said what he had to say. 
This is time period number one. Jesus at his weakest. Peter claiming to be at his strongest. And Satan is licking his chops. So let's move to time period number two. Jesus in the garden. He brings James, John, and Peter. But I had never noticed this, and this is a, a point Clark Sims brought out one time. How desperate, how desperate does Jesus have to be to say these words, Peter, you're going to deny not know me, and then bring Peter into the garden with him? How desperate does Jesus have to be just to want somebody right beside him? Just some skin, just some socks, just some flesh to be by side. How desperate does Jesus have to be to bring Peter along with him? Just somebody. It's always been in his mind, but it's on the tomorrow. He's about to do the hardest thing he's ever done, and his best friend is going to deny him. Peter, I want you by my side, but you're going to claim to not know me. Folks, what an event. Would you like to be a fly on the wall in this conversation? So at this point, we find ourselves between two statements. Simon, Satan has desired you that, you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And then we get to verse 34, the second statement. I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. In his deity... Jesus knows the truth of what Peter's going to do, but in his humanity, he expresses his longing to stay as far away from the cross as he possibly can. Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let's do it that way. Nevertheless, nevertheless, let, this, let your will be done, not my will. Okay? Scene number three. We get to verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. So they come and they take Jesus. They bring him to the high priest's house. Peter follows at a distance. Verse 55. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down among them, excuse me, and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Now the ESV, if you're reading it, verse 56 says, Then... And I bring that out because, folks, it doesn't take long once you sit down by the fire that an immediacy in how you're supposed to react is demanded. Then a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked at him intently and said, This man also was with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. He denied it. The same mouth that said, I will go to prison, I will go to death. The same man that said, I will take up my cross and follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. G uh, Peter walked with Jesus. He taught with Jesus. He laughed with Jesus. He cried with Jesus. He went through everything. And now the world has inclined him to say, I don't know this man. And I'm here to ask you, if Peter is subject to that. Are any of us above that kind of scrutiny? Absolutely not. Boy, it sure would be nice to live life in the upper room setting. Woman, I don't know him. How many times have you made those commitments? How many times have you said, I'll give it all up? 
I'm ready to give it all up. I'm ready to go to death for you, Christ. I'm done committing that sin only to fall again into the grips of the world. Guilty. And am I the only one here? I know those moments. I've said those things. And perhaps, and perhaps, maybe not with my actual words, maybe not vocally like Peter does, but in my actions, in the things that I say, I have said, I don't know him. And again, am I the only one? Denial number two and three come closely thereafter. But then you see in verse 59, it says, After about an hour, another confidently affirmed. If you read the parallel accounts, it says that after this happened, Peter curses. The pressure of the world caused Peter to crack. So what is this realization for Peter? Knowing that Jesus thought so lowly of him at a time, just a couple verses earlier, that he says, you're going to deny knowing who I am. Not only does Jesus say that, well, Jesus don't think a whole lot of me, does he? Only for a couple verses later for it to actually come true. What is that realization for Peter? Knowing that the man that he said, I'll give it all up for, his master, he has just completely been disloyal. What is that realization for him? And then the rooster crows. But then notice this. Then Jesus looks at Peter. I want you to imagine that gaze. What kind of gaze do you think that was? A gaze of disappointment? Disloyalty? A gaze of what in the world are you doing? I want to think I know my Jesus. And I want to think that it was a gaze of forgiveness. I want to think that it was a gaze of forgiveness. So what is Peter's response going to be to this gaze, this realization that he has just did exactly the opposite of what he said he would do? And I want you to notice verse 62. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now I've done some crying in my day. I've cried for a lot of different things, a lot of loved ones that have passed, a lot of tears of joy. I've cried over sin that I've committed. But folks, that weeping is a whole different level. That weeping is not just tears from the eyes, folks. That weeping is tears from the heart. And that's what Peter did when he realized how much in the wrong he was, how much he had forsaken Christ. And here's what I'll say our reaction should be to this, and I'll leave you with this. I would rather weep bitterly in this life and come to my senses knowing the pain I have caused God with my sin than to stand before my Maker having never shed a single tear for the sins I have committed. Because at that point, folks, there's no longer weeping bitterly. Folks, it's only the weeping and gnashing of teeth after that. We're all in the fire. We're all in the forge. The question is, what is our reaction going to be? We're going to sing a song in just a second. A song of invitation. <sighs> Jesus Christ gave up the glory of heaven and came and lived just like us, 
and died the death that you and I deserve. That's the realization we need. We need to realize that it was supposed to be me on that cross. And guess what? That demands a reaction from us. What am I going to do with this knowledge? You believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. John chapter 8 and verse 24. Repent lest you likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Confess that he is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Be buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. Commitment. That's what he wants. He wants commitment. He wants when the fires of life get tough that we're going to stand there and say, I'm with Jesus. I'm going to go through the fire in this life so as to avoid the fire in the next life. I don't know if you're a Christian today, but you need to be. You need to be in Christ because that's the safest place you can possibly be. I know it's probably the case that many of us here are already Christians. Many of us here have already surrendered to the call of Christ. Sometimes that fire gets hot. Sometimes we don't answer in the appropriate manner. And sometimes we need to come home. Uh, if you're subject to the invitation call, won't you come now as we stand and as we sing? I have decided to follow Jesus.